You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. So we're all about to learn the difference between colluding and coordinating. Basically, yesterday, we learned the first hearings into the Russia-Trump campaign connections from James Comey that the president of the United States is basically under an espionage investigation for colluding or coordinating with the Russians. This is going to get really fucking interesting. But you know, we're not going to talk about this, and we're not going to talk about Donald Trump at the top of today's show. This is a sex and relationship advice podcast. And for a lovely and delightful change of pace, you know what we're going to talk about at the top of today's show? We're going to talk about sex just to prove that we still can talk about sex. But talking about sex seems to be all some of us are doing about sex anymore. New study came out a couple of weeks ago that blew up the New York Times and made a lot of headlines documenting a decline in sexual frequency among American adults 1989 to 2014. We are having all of us less sex now, it seems, than we were a couple of decades ago. From the study, which you can read at the Archives of Sexual Behavior, American adults had sex about nine fewer times per year in early 2010s compared to the late 1990s in data from the Nationally Representative General Social Survey. Da, 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 da. This was partially due to the higher percentage of unpartnered individuals. Married people, partnered people tend to have sex more often, but also they found that people with partners were having less sex than they used to. Cue the hand-wringing and finger-pointing at some of the usual suspects. A lot of people who saw the headline were quick to point a finger at pornography, that people weren't having sex because they were jacking it alone in the family room in the middle of the night while their spouse wept quietly in the marital bedroom. But that was not the case. The decline, I'm reading again from the abstract, decline was not linked to increased pornography use. In fact, when you dig into the data, pornography users, I love that formulation, pornography users, were having more sex than people who did not use pornography. The New York Times looking at the fact in the data that millennials and Generation Zers, which are the people coming up behind millennials, that they're having sex less often, pin the blame on portable technology and entertainment. Basically, we are all playing Candy Crush and looking at Twitter and watching Netflix late at night in bed instead of in boredom, I suppose, rolling over, looking at the person next to us and fucking the shit out of them or asking them to fuck the shit out of us. With all our hand-wringing about young people and hookup culture, the study actually found, and I'm quoting here, with age and time period controlled, those born in the 1930s, the silent generation, had sex the most often, whereas those born in the 1990s, millennials and iGen or Generation Z or whatever we're going to fucking call them, had sex the least often. The people who came up with technology are having a lot less sex than people who came up with swing bands in World War II, I suppose. What does it all mean? Debbie Herbenick, Dr. Debbie Herbenick of Indiana University and the Kinsey Institute had a great op-ed in the Washington Post encouraging people to not emphasize the quantity of sex that we're having, but instead to look for the quality of sex that we're having. She speculated in her piece that Americans may have been consenting previously to sex they did not want to have, women who didn't think they could say no to their husbands, asexuals who didn't have a word to describe themselves and so lacked 
the self-conception that would empower them as a community to refuse to have sex they didn't want to be having in the first place. Maybe there are reasons, good reasons, some people are having less sex. She also cites health concerns, diabetes, obesity, not always a problem, obesity, but can be, and the fact that more Americans than ever are surviving cancer. And of course, cancer treatments can leave a person happy to be alive, but less capable of obtaining or sustaining an erection or uh, lubricating and then less interested in sex generally. And the study didn't ask people about satisfaction. They didn't ask people if they were happy with the amount of sex that they were having or happy with their sex lives or their emotional lives, just using quantity of sex as the metric. And Dr. Hermenic wants us to think more about quality and less about quantity and called for follow-up studies. And I agree. And while I agree with Dr. Hermenic, and you should all go read her terrific op-ed at the Washington Post unpacking this study, people do call in all the time to this here Savage Lovecast complaining about quantity and quality occasionally, but a lot of calls are people who are unhappy with the amount of sex that they're having and telling them to focus on the quality of the sex they're having when they're not having the quantity they want maybe is going to come as a cold comfort to them. I do note often the same people who complain about quantity complain about intentionality. They don't want to schedule sex. They want it to be spontaneous. They want it to happen, quote unquote, naturally. And this desire for spontaneity, for not scheduling sex, seems to be at war with, I think, technologies. I think the fact that we have so many entertainment options beyond our partner's junk or our own junk these days. And we're going to have to err on the side of some intentionality. We're going to have to err on the side of some scheduling if we are going to defeat our devices. If we're going to turn away from Twitter and turn to twatter or butter or whatever you're pet name is for your partner's genitalia or preferred orify, we're going to have to be intentional about it. We're going to have to set the phones down in another room and head to the bedroom and turn the lights off and still be awake and have nothing else to do for a while except each other. So yeah, I agree with Dr. Herbenic. I often do. I must always do. Quality matters more than quantity. I'd rather have Less great sex than tons of shitty sex. Who wouldn't rather have less but great than lots but shitty? That said, quantity matters too. Particularly if you're with someone with whom you have great sex. You want to be having more great sex with that person. And if Netflix or Twitter or whatever the current game is, it's not Flying Pigs or Candy Crush anymore, whatever the current game is that's occupying all of your brain cells in the middle of the night or at bedtime you're going to have to schedule some putting that shit down, schedule some putting that shit away so you can turn to each other instead and ramp up the quantity, particularly you young people. Old people like to think that young people are horny monsters who are having sex all the time. And this study, well, we're very disappointed in you young people. You're letting us down. You're making it harder for us to live vicariously through you. So put the phone down. Turn the Netflix off. Suck a dick. Eat some pussy. Do each other. Get these numbers up. All right. Before we get to today's show, I just want to remind everyone we have a live taping of the Savage Lovecast coming up in Portland, Oregon at Revolution Hall on April 14th. It's going to be our first Easter extravaganza. We've got lots of surprises planned for you. You will want to be there. Go to portlandmercury.com slash Easter for tickets. All right. Coming up on today's show, tons of your questions, tons of my answers, and Brian Whitney, who's the co-author of Raw Deal, a new book he wrote with the infamous New York City Police Department, Cannibal Cop Gill Valley. We have a fascinating conversation 
about that subject, about sexual fantasies involving cannibalism, and whether people should be tossed in jail for that. That's in the Magnum. And here we go with the micro and your questions. Hi, Dan. I am um, calling about an issue with my dad. He um, He's in his mid-60s. Been divorced for um, 15 years, maybe longer, and recently has started to try and put himself out there again to a disastrous uh, effect. He just he doesn't make smart decisions around women. And now he he had a situation last year where he got himself in a lot of trouble with a relationship, and it required an enormous amount of emotional support from his kids, his adult children. Um, as well as just needing a couch to crash on for um, a couple of months while it all blew over. Um, now he is apparently chatting with a Russian mail order brides, I guess is the best way to put it, and planning to visit them in the next week. And I don't know what to do. Um, I don't know how to be supportive without supporting something that is obviously a terrible idea. He's probably not even chatting with women. I mean, it's probably employees of whatever company this is and pictures of women is what I'm guessing because he's already spent a lot of money on the website um, and I don't understand why they would want him to go there. That is very suspicious and and scary um, as opposed to to a woman coming here. Anyway, I, I don't know what my role is as his adult daughter in supporting him and I know at some point the kids sort of become the parents and I don't know how to step into that role, especially in this context, if that's what needs to happen. I just, I want him to be safe and protect himself, but I don't, I don't know how to convince him to do that or how to, um, yeah, I just, I I don't know what to do. Your dad is an adult or a reasonable facsimile of an adult. If you're not prepared to march into court and attempt to have your dad declared incompetent and capable of taking care of himself and handling his own finances and making his own decisions and being appointed his guardian, going for guardianship over your dad, I'm not sure what you can do besides yell and scream at him and reason with him. You could contact what's left of the State Department to see if other American citizens have been scammed by this same outfit or with this same ruse and the State Department might advise your dad not to go. But, you know, there's not much left of the State Department now. So maybe you'd be better off contacting your state attorney general's office to see if they've issued warnings about this particular group or this particular type of scam to seniors in your state. Those are nuclear options, truly nuclear. If I were in your shoes, I would tell myself my dad isn't elderly. I would maybe contact his physician and suggest a mental health checkup before dad considering these actions, these behaviors. Then have an argument. If his physician declares him mentally competent, have an argument with your dad. Tell him any actual Russian mail order bride who might be interested in the 60-something-year-old American is essentially a sex worker. And you know what? There are sex workers closer to home, and it will be cheaper for him in the long run to hire local. No international, awful international flights, no middle seats in coach, hire local. And he can have a connection. He can find a sex worker nearby and establish 
a relationship with one, which is commodified, sure, but I'm sorry, a relationship with a Russian mail-order bride is also commodified, but they can involve actual affection. Talk to sex workers. When you speak to sex workers about their long-term regular clients, there is true affection and concern that goes both ways in those relationships when they are healthy and functional. And you can say that about any relationship. There should be true concern and empathy and compassion going both ways in all healthy functional relationships. And it is possible for a sex worker and a regular client to establish a healthy, functional, long-term, commodified relationship slash connection. That's what I would be encouraging my dad to do if this were my dad making this mistake. And it is quite obviously a mistake that your dad is about to make. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a bi girl living in the Northwest. And I'm calling with a question because I just slept with a taken person for the third time last night, uh, different people each time. And I'm looking for some moral clarity and what's wrong with me. So, and it was super hot and finally turned on my sex drive for the first time in four months. So how do I make sure I stop sleeping with people who are taken in the future though? I think you should pick up a copy of Daniel Bergner's terrific book, What Do Women Want? Adventures in the Science of Female Desire. It unpacks a lot of what scientists and researchers now know or believe they know about what turns women on, what gets women going. And one of the things, one of the primary things that seems to arouse desire in women is to be desired. They, women want to be wanted. They want the power of their attractiveness, their looks, their bodies, their brains, their everything, to be so overwhelming that the man that is attracted to them, if it's a heterosexual thing, is just overwhelmed by that desire. They can't control themselves. And I think that's what's at play here with you. I think this is why you are into these people who are taken. You're into being taken by these people who are taken. You're into taking these people who are taken. Because what it says to your perhaps subconscious, if you're not consciously aware of it, what it says to your erotic imagination is, I am so powerfully attractive. I am so desirable that this person who shouldn't is. This person who shouldn't be fucking me is fucking me. Not because they're awful, not because they're a cad, not because they're a cheater, but because I am so irresistibly attractive. And that sense of being wanted so badly that this person will violate their relationship, violate their commitment, they will break this taboo, turns you on because, because you want to be wanted because that, that awakens desire in you, their desire, that, that male person's desire for you or that female person, if you've been taken by people who are taken, who are ladies, it gets you going, it makes you wet, turns you on. What do you do about that? Well, I guess you could get involved in organized swinging, but then you're not being taken by someone who shouldn't be taking you. You're being taken by someone who has permission to go get you. So what you're going to have to do if you want to stop being the person who cheats with other people is to find other ways to feel as wanted, to replace this dynamic, this thing that stirs your libido, to be with someone who shouldn't be with you. That's how badly they want to be with you. They shouldn't be with you and they are with you. You have to find something that you can put there in its place. You can find, you have to find some other way to be wanted that badly. Maybe you should start taking out personal ads in cities and states that you don't live in and 
seeing if guys will fly all the way to wherever you are to be with you because that's how badly they want you or you should set up hurdles that guys have to clear before they can get into your pants or women have to clear before they can get under your skirts and seeing those people clear those hurdles to get to you will make you feel as wanted. Or maybe this is your thing and knowing that it's the wrong thing or a wrong thing, a thing that you shouldn't be doing. You could convince yourself that this is a fantasy that you should explore only through role play and you should Find guys who aren't attached or find guys who are in open relationship or women who aren't attached or women who are in open relationships and have them dirty talk with you about cheating on their partners or primary partners with you when they're not actually technically cheating. But they can crank you up by pretending they are. Anyway, go get What Do Women Want by Daniel Bergner and read it. I think it'll help you unpick the lock on the safe that is your brains and erotic imagination. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old male, straight male, living in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and I'm calling because I'm having a problem with my father and my stepmom. A few years ago, on a family trip to Miami while I was in college, uh, my stepmom came on to me. Um, she's quite an attractive Latina woman. And I came back from hanging out with some friends, and she was dressed in her dressing gown and had a glass of whiskey in her hand and was cracking open nuts. Um, she proceeded to sit me down and start massaging me quite erotically. Um, she ended up knees down in my lap. Um, I became aroused. Uh, she was quite uncomfortable, but at the same time, what, you know, every teenager's dream in some ways, but was quite mortifying in reality. She then laid me down on the couch and started hand feeding me candies, asking me which one I preferred more. And when I replied, I liked them both. She asked me if that means I prefer two women at the same time. She then spoke to me in Spanish and put a blanket over me and walked away. I didn't tell anyone in my family about this for years. Um, and recently they've my father and my stepmom have started getting divorced, and I've shown a lot of animosity towards my stepmom to my father's dismay because she's always been very helpful and kind throughout my life. I guess I'm calling because I finally told my dad and I told my siblings uh, who advised me to tell him finally. Um, I did, and his reaction was slightly dismissive, um, and he tells me, you know, let it go. She didn't know what she was doing. I'm wondering if I should call her out on it. I feel kind of angry about the whole thing and want to speak to her about it. Uh, I'm not sure if I should just let bygones be bygones, considering she probably doesn't remember. Uh, she does take Ambien, and I'm almost positive she was kind of blacked out on uh, her sleeping medication and a bit of whiskey. Um, it's also a touchy subject because I'm still quite close with her son, who's my stepbrother. Um, any advice? Thanks, Dan. So uh, a quick follow-up question. You, you, when you talk to your mm -hmm. dad, he said sleeping pills, alcohol. And do, did you know if your stepmom, when you all lived together, did she take Ambien? Was she taking sleeping pills regularly that she shouldn't have been mixing with alcohol? 
she was taking sleeping pills um, and it was sort of her nightly thing to have like a little glass of whiskey um, and, <laughs> and a handful came, of Ambien. Apparently. Yeah. Okay. Um, and when I came, when I came back, she was just so out of it, but really into me. Yeah. Out of it and behaved toward you in a really inappropriate way, a way that made you feel really uncomfortable. And I think if I may, you describe her as hot and very, very attractive in a way that probably left you yeah. feeling conflicted and torn because you probably were aroused by this situation, but you felt you, you know you couldn't betray your dad and the, the wrongness of it was also banging on the walls as she was yeah. touching you and, and, and eliciting from you, you know, an arousal response that you didn't mm-hmm. wish 100%. that you didn't want her to elicit and they, that you felt shame in the wake of and conflict in the wake of. Here, Definitely. Here's the thing. It seems to me that you should say something to your stepmom, and what you're likely to hear from her is, I'm mortified, I don't remember, I'm so sorry. You know, people have, and this is now me talking, not me trying to pretend, not role-playing your, your stepmom talking. People right. on Ambien, and particularly people who've mixed sleeping pills of any sort in alcohol, have driven cars to the grocery store, have gone to airports and attempted to board airplanes, have initiated sex, have done crazy things during blackouts on yeah. sleeping pills. I imagine that that's either what happened or it's what she's going to tell you happened. Right? Yeah. You know, she's probably unlikely to say, yeah, I wanted to fuck you. Yeah, I would have fucked you. Yeah, I still would fuck you. I don't think that that's what she's going to say. I also think that that's probably not the truth. If I was going to lay odds, I would say there's a 90% chance that this was an ambient blackout or some sort of really diminished capacity moment for her that when you bring it up, she's going to be mortified, embarrassed, and she's going to apologize. Mm -hmm. Then you have some choices to make, right? This obviously traumatized you to some extent, right? Yeah. And yeah, even, even at one point during, while she was massaging me, she, my dad, who also takes Ambien opened the door of his bedroom. I could tell, I could tell he was messed up. And he just like had this weird glance and then like closed the door. Like he had heard some noise outside, opened the door, looked at us and then went right back to bed. But he clearly had no clue what was going on and didn't remember or anything. Okay. Well, it's, I think it's telling about blood connections, right? That you have exonerated your father completely, but you can't quite exonerate your stepmother here because your relationship Mm -hmm. with your biological father is one that you really can't escape. You know, a a step-parent, uh, comes into a, a family and, you know, when, if the relationship ends between the biological parent and the step parent, usually that's the ending of the relationship between the biological children and the step parent too. So, it, it, you know, it's really telling about the kind of emotional calculus that goes on in our heads that your dad may have been equally complicit and yet you have told yourself a story that gets your dad entirely off the hook, but you haven't told yourself a story that gets your stepmother off the hook. Yeah. So my advice would be, because I think you need this to to move past, have a conversation with your stepmother. Just say, you know, I just need to get off my chest. And this happened and it just left me feeling really terrible and weird. And it's kind of been a stone in my shoe and I need to get it out. And then she'll hopefully, if she's not, if she doesn't have a zero emotional IQ, she will apologize. She will express her mortification and probably, and it, obviously I think it'll be true. She will chalk it up to the ambient and the alcohol. And then you have to decide what you're going to do going forward. Because think of this memory, think of 
the trauma or the conflict is a, a, you know, a plastic garbage bag full of razor blades that you've been hugging to yourself for a long time. Yeah. And now you have this choice. Are you going to continue to grip this basket of, you know, this bag of razor blades in in your arms? You're going to continue to hold it tight and cut yourself up or are you going to put it down and walk away from it and, and and choose the de-escalating narrative that in a way gets your stepmom off the hook, gets your dad off the hook, allows you to continue to have a relationship with your stepmom's son that's important to you? Yeah. You know, there's there's a certain amount of agency when we, you know, we create the narratives, we tell we tell ourselves our stories. And there are times when, you know, when it comes to traumas that we can tell ourselves a story that in this case is probably true. That makes it easier for us to get on with our lives, to get past the trauma, not to deny that it ever took place, mm-hmm. but to wander away from it, to back away from it. And it seems to me that that's what you should do because that's in your own self-interest because your own, you know, from your own stated desire to have and maintain the relationship with your stepbrother, to maintain a, a good relationship with your dad, which you've already done by telling yourself a version of the story that exonerates your dad. Mm-hmm. So all you're doing now is expanding that version of the story to include your stepmom. After you have the accountability moment for your stepmom and with your stepmom, where you say, this happened, I've been carrying it around for a long time, I got to get it off my chest, I would like an apology and an explanation, and then we never have to talk about it again and we can we can bury it together, but... Jesus Christ. Yeah, because I'd really like to bury it because I'm super close with my dad and I could tell that when I told him about it, he seemed like a little hurt that his wife was capable of doing something like this. But he also kind of chalked it up to, oh, you know, she Mm -hmm. didn't know what she was doing and you should just let it go. And it's not a big deal. Did you tell your dad when you talked to your dad about it? Did you tell your dad about him walking in on it or did you not say anything? No. And. When I confronted my dad, uh, it was with my sister, and she kind of brought it out because I was really nervous. And uh, he said he was curious about what happened. And as I started to talk about some of the details, my sister kind of gave me a little kick under the table. Like, don't tell him exactly what happened. Keep it simple. He doesn't need to hear that stuff. It's hurtful. Mm. So he doesn't really know the specifics of what actually happened. Okay, well, this is just more evidence of what I said earlier, that you have the biological children circling the wagons because the relationship with the biological parent is one that you can't escape ever. And so you're all choosing the de-escalating option there, the de-escalating narrative, including holding back details from your father that I think you should have shared with him. Yeah. And you can do the same with your stepmother, not hold back details, not let anybody off any hooks, but choose the de-escalating narrative and choose forgiveness and, and grace after the apology that you clearly need and clearly deserve is offered to you. Right. Okay. That would be my advice. Thank you. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Good luck. But don't, you know, you've been gripping the bag of razor blades for a long time. Get it all out and then walk away from that bag of razor blades. Set it the fuck down. All right. Will do. Thank you so much, Dan. Hi, Dan. Late 20s, married couple, been married for about a year, having a debate right now on the way home from work, sitting in traffic. Um, This morning... Uh, my wife and I were having sex, and you're getting a little frisky. 
So I decided to stick a dildo inside of her and then have her blow me while I use the toy on her. This afternoon, driving home, having a conversation about that, she seemed to think that that is kinky play because it happened before work. But if we had done that after dinner tonight, that would have just been our normal kind of vanilla sex or like the bar for vanilla sex. And I was saying that I don't believe you can have a sexual act be kinky during one part of the day or prior to or after a certain act or, or event and then have it be vanilla a different part of the day. Uh, she's sticking to her gun, but I'm sticking to mine, and I'm curious as to uh, your opinion on the matter. One man's roll of duct tape is another man's sex toy, which is to say that kink is really subjective. So you can both be right. Your wife can be right, and you can be right. For her, the fact that you did this dildo and blowjob play early in the morning, it felt naughtier early in the day for her, and therefore it felt kinky to her. And and for you, time of day is irrelevant when you're weighing something on the kink to the vanilla spectrum scale, whatever. So you're both right. It was kinky for her because time of day wasn't kinky for you because that's vanilla sex for you guys. A lot of people out there would regard using a sex toy, using a dildo on someone while they blew you as itself inherently kinky whenever and wherever it happened. But you don't have to agree. You can agree to disagree. Your wife is entitled to her opinion, her subjective opinion about her own experiences, about what is or isn't experienced by her as kinky, and you are entitled to your own as well. So my advice, my ruling is for you two to stop debating this and to let yourselves as a newly married couple have a difference of opinion without having to hammer each other into agreement on this, because you know what? There's going to be a lot of things that you are not going to agree about over the course of your marriage. And sometimes the best hack is to agree to disagree rather than regard yourself as one brain that has to come to some sort of consensus on absolutely everything, because that will make you A, crazy, and B, ultimately divorced. Hi, Dan. I am a straight early 20s female on the West Coast. Um, I've been with my boyfriend for about nine months. Um, but in the past few months, we've been having an issue with tearing. My partner is uncircumcised and his foreskin gets small tears in it. Um, we're in a monogamous relationship and have sex without condoms. We've tried to increase lubrication, whether it's making sure I'm fully aroused or a partial blowjob, but the tears seem to come right back. We've tried taking some time off to let him heal, but nothing seems to do the trick. Do you have any suggestions? Thanks. Men and boys who can't fully retract their foreskins have a condition called phimosis, a tight foreskin. And this can be painful and it can, in some cases, be dangerous. It can make sex awkward and unpleasant and, again, painful. But there are treatments, including getting circumcised, but also the application of a steroid ointment to the foreskin to help it soften and loosen and expand. And I think your boyfriend should go talk to his doctor and tell him that he has this problem around ripping of his foreskin, even if you're using a lot of lube. And this may be a help to him. I think your boyfriend should go talk to his doctor about this problem. And I would recommend, and I am not a doctor and I am not his doctor. His doctor may have a different recommendation, but it seems to me that a little more slack in his foreskin, a little more suppleness, a little looser foreskin might help solve this problem. So this steroid ointment that is prescribed to people with phimosis could possibly help your boyfriend solve this problem. If it doesn't solve the problem, you're just going to have to fuck more gently, use more lube, and the occasional rip or tear may be the price of admission that your boyfriend has to pay 
for the orgasms that your boyfriend enjoys. And when he's ripped, when there's a little uncomfortable tearing, then you can lay off his dick for a while and he can eat your pussy until his dick is back in action. Uh, hey, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old uh, cisgendered gay male uh, calling from uh, Copenhagen, Denmark. I'm calling because um, last week me and my boyfriend uh, broke up. We've been together four and a half years, and I found out that most of the time he had been cheating on me with at least uh, eight def different men, um, four of them being my closest uh, friends. Two of them, he had a sexual relationship for, uh, for two years uh, with them. Well, I, th I, I think he might be a nymphomaniac. Um, I, I, I didn't suspect anything. He's been lying for, for pretty much throughout our whole relationship. And so have my friends. And, and I don't know if, if I should uh, tell his parents uh, about what truly happened. Um, they, of course, know that we broke up. Uh, they're very kind and very warm. But I, I still love him very much. And, and I, I really want him to also get help um, if he needs that. He says that he's very uh, uh, sad about what happened. And he did it. Uh, for the excitement, and but if he's ever gonna see a shrink, he'll need the push from his parents because he wouldn't be able to afford a uh, shrink without support from his parents. And also, I, I want to know um, if he gets a, a boyfriend in the future, should I tell that boyfriend what happened uh, between me and him? You need and deserve a better boyfriend. Sounds like you also need and deserve and hopefully are out there finding some better friends. If your boyfriend was cheating on you with all of your friends, including having multi-year affairs behind your back with your friends, it wasn't just your boyfriend who betrayed you. Now, pivoting to your questions, I think you should leave his parents out of it. It's only been a week. You broke up a week ago and it seems to me that you're doing a really good job of concealing what has to be some anger. You must be angry and upset about this four and a half years worth of, uh, of betrayals that he meted out to, including betraying you with your close friends. And yet you're presenting all of this to me. You're rolling out your problem to me, not as one of anger, but of concern for him. And yet all of your solutions seem to involve some form of retribution in the drag of concern and compassion. I want to go tell his parents on him. I want to go tell his kind and lovely parents what a cheating shitbag their son is so that they know I'm the victim here in this breakup and so that they can offer him some money to go see a shrink in case he needs to see a shrink. And what if he gets a boyfriend out of love and compassion and concern for this stranger, this boyfriend that I do not know and I've never met? Should I go and tell the boyfriend to be named later, to be determined that my ex, their current is a cheater, a lying sack of shit who betrayed me in these scalding ways. Uh, your boyfriend may or may not need help. Your boyfriend just may need to accept that this is who he is. Your boyfriend may go to a shrink and if he gets a sex positive shrink, who's not going to shame him, will say that the mistake he made was not the amount of sex he wanted to have with the amount of people that he wanted to have sex with. The mistake he made was entering into a monogamous commitment that he is incapable of keeping. That if he wants to have many, many sex partners, particularly as a gay man, it's not difficult to find a partner who 
is down with an open relationship, who isn't going to demand a exclusive sexual commitment from him, a commitment that he should now know after shitting the bed in his last relationship with you that he's incapable of keeping. As for future boyfriends, Denmark is a small country. Copenhagen is a lovely town and the gay community there I've visited is tightly knit. Everyone seemed to know everyone else. I don't think that you go and pull his boyfriend aside if he gets another boyfriend to warn him. That said, you have a right to your experience and you have a right to tell your truths. Rushing out to tell his boyfriend what you know or what he did to you, an asshole move. But if you're interacting socially with someone that he's dating and they ask you why your relationship ended, I think you have an absolute right to tell your truth. The relationship ended because he cheated on me and cheated on me in really painful ways with people I thought were my friends. That's why the relationship ended. You also might want to have a conversation while the wound is still fresh, while you and your boyfriend may still be processing the end of your relationship, still swapping whatever books and clothes or personal items you had in each other's apartments. You might want to say to him, don't make monogamous commitments. Know yourself. And what you should know about yourself now is that you can't do what you told me we were doing. So don't do that thing. Don't lie to people the way you lied to me. And there's no need to lie to people the way you lied to me. I want a monogamous commitment from the person that I'm with. And there are gay men out there who can make monogamous commitments and keep them. But there are plenty of gay men out there that want commitments without monogamy. And you owe it to yourself. You owe it to karma. And you owe it to anyone you date in the future to make sure that you're on the same page on this subject. Because what you've done was shitty and uncalled for and unnecessary. So don't be a shitty person going forward. Hi, Dan. I, I'm a 24-year-old New Yorker, uh, bisexual, and I, I've been in a straight relationship for the past 10 years. I don't think my boyfriend's ever accepted the bisexual part of me, even though I, I've mentioned it a few times. And we also, <laughs> there hasn't been much sex in the past two years. Um, I'm finding it harder and harder to not only deal with the no sex part, but also to deal with the fact that I, I've been attracted to women since I was a young kid and I can't explore that part of myself or I guess really any part of myself sexually at this point in my life. It's, it's almost like the bisexual part has become harder than just not having sex at a certain point. And I feel like I've, I've brought up my boyfriend before open relationships, which he's not into. And I am really in love with him, but I, I don't know I, any advice you would have for someone who's stuck in a heterosexual relationship where they feel like it's important to them to be having a physical relationship with someone of the opposite sex and also maybe the same uh any advice you'd have i'd love to hear let's take the bisexuality off the table for just a second 10 years into a relationship committed loving you like him you love him no sex last couple of years no sex how long are you going to stick around no sex in a long-term relationship with a person isn't even willing to discuss or, or entertain the possibility of an open relationship 
that's going to end eventually unless that person's desire or libido rebounds significantly for some reason and soon. That's going to end. So it seems to me you might as well go ahead and pull the plug. A relationship doesn't have to be a roiling disaster. It doesn't have to be a Trump administration. It doesn't have to be a catastrophe and high conflict and high stress and a lot of drama and unpleasantness to acknowledge that it isn't working anymore and to walk away from it. You can have – that's how amicable breakups happen. It's two people who still feel tremendous affection for each other acknowledging that they're just not supposed to be with each other in this way going forward anymore. Maybe down the road they could get back together or maybe they'll have a different kind of loving, caring relationship in the future but not this kind, not a committed, exclusive intimate romantic relationship. Maybe they will be great and loving friends and in each other's lives and part of each other's support systems forever, just not in a sexually exclusive, monogamous, sexless long-term relationship anymore. Now we'll put bisexuality back on the table. Yeah, you need to end this relationship. End this relationship and find someone who is a woman that you can be intimate with or find yourself a guy who is not into monogamy or a guy who is up for the occasional guy, girl, girl, three-way. I hear they're out there by the millions and millions and millions and tens and hundreds of millions. You have options. You have the option to stay in a relationship that frustrates you and limits you, or you have the option to go and maintain a relationship with your ex, a loving relationship with your ex, while forging new and loving relationships with the partners who'll be coming your way once you are free and clear. We're going to take a quick break from the calls to speak with an author who has a new book out about a kind of sensationalistic trial, a kind of a sex crime trial where a sex crime hadn't technically been committed. I'm sure you all recall Gil Valley. He's the cannibal cop who in early 2012 was arrested and indicted and convicted of conspiring to capture, kidnap, cook, roast alive and eat some women that he knew, including his wife. And he was recently uh, let out of prison. And joining us by phone to talk about Gil Valley and his case is Brian Whitney, who's the co-author, along with Mr. Valley of, and you got to love this title, really ballsy, Raw <laughs> Deal, the untold story of the NYPD's cannibal cop. Hey, Brian, how are you? Hey, very good. Thanks for having me on. Uh, thanks for coming on. So quickly, for folks who don't remember or blotted it out, can you run us through the told story of Gil Valley before we get sure, to the untold sure. story? Gil, um, the quick version, I mean, it's a very long and twisted sort of tale, but the quick version is he has a fetish, a paraphilia. He gets kind of turned on by, um, not kind of, he gets really turned on by thoughts of not the actual, this is going to be kind of extreme. It's okay, right? For me to just mm-hmm. go right into this. Okay, not the, actual, not the actual cooking and the eating of women, but he's more into the bondage, sort of like kidnap sort of vibe. Um, mm-hmm. He's felt this way since he was very young. He never told anybody about it. Um, he ended up getting married, did not tell his wife about it, um, was engaging in some... He would get on a website called the Dark Fetish Net where he would talk to some other people about some of their plans to, you know, fantasy plans to kidnap these women. He would put up photos of women in his real life that he knew in his real life on these sites and talk about them in these fantasies. His wife put spyware on his computer because she thinks he's having an affair. 
she finds this stuff. She freaks out. She goes to the FBI. Mm -hmm. Um, Six cops with guns out arrest him a few weeks later. He doesn't see the light of day again for about 21 months, taken to prison, convicted of conspiracy to kidnap, and then was exonerated. And now he's out. And we wrote a book about that. Well, was he exonerated or was he just sentenced then to time served and released? No, he was actually, he, and, and he gets really wound about this. So yeah, to be, mm-hmm. to be clear, he was completely exonerated. Yes. It's a very rare right. thing. The judge went in and exonerated him. Okay. Cause in the first trial, which I followed closely, there's a lot of writing about it. Really good writing at Slate actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. Dan Engler like does some really good right. pieces. Yeah. The, the prosecution argued that he had moved past just fantasizing about doing these terrible things to women to taking action toward doing right. these things, including right. tracking the movements of some of the women that he had fantasized about kidnapping, binding, roasting alive and eating. Right. Right. Would you like to address that real quickly? Because I, I, I hear you. you know, people have like dark and twisted fantasies, and that is fine. Right. Um, it's not a thought crime. But to move from dark and twisted fantasies to taking steps toward realizing your dark and twisted fantasies when that involves cook, you know, kidnapping, uh, Definitely. torturing, no, I, cooking. Yeah, no, I, I would, Th- that raises the bar. Like, you know, <laughs> you, you have to project yourself into that circumstance. If you were one of the people on his list or one of the people whose movements he began to track, and I think he abused uh, right. a police department database to do that tracking, you would want him arrested maybe before he kidnapped you and cooked right. you I mean, and then after? There's like a few different pieces of that. What you're getting at is like there was some evidence they initially said that they had, which um, the prosecutor said they had about cell phone towers, which they didn't even bring up a trial because it was not it was not accurate. That stuff was mm-hmm. reported like pre-trial, like oh they had this data and then it didn't happen. As far as the um, a big thing with Gill um, is, and I'll get back to the tracking part real quick, but in all of these different things. He's talking about taking women to a mountain house, like in a white van that doesn't exist. The house doesn't exist. The van doesn't exist. Um, mm-hmm. At one point, he said there was going to be kidnappings on three different continents on the same day. Um, mm-hmm. There was never once he talked about kidnapping somebody with his, with his gun and his handcuffs, you know, that he actually had. Now, mm-hmm. the one thing that you do bring up is the database. Like, that is something that he says he would just look women's names up on occasion to make sure his computer was working. I have, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's and all. Coincidentally I really enough, that. it was coincidentally enough. It was the women <laughs> that he was, had on his list of potential. I think, I mean, I think he, he said he would do it with, with different people, but I think that's part of like the fetish kind of aspect of it. And I mean, we right. could talk that, that's, about, that's obviously, that's obviously bullshit. <laughs> well, and, and I hate to laugh about it. It's, I'm laughing out of nervousness. Um, it's obviously bullshit. It, and it doesn't necessarily negate his argument that he was just constructing the most realistic fantasy scenarios because those got him off. And part of the construction of the realistic fantasy scenario was the illegal, and it was illegal or a violation uh, of regulations, abuse of this database that he had access to. And it was part of fueling you know, his fantasy life by constructing the most realistic possible fantasy scenario with no intention of ever acting on it still. You know, and and that's the kind of thing that I honestly wouldn't argue with you for or against that particular thing. What I have is what he told me and what you said also makes a lot of sense. I mean, sometimes when somebody does have a particular paraphilia on a certain thing, there's going to be fantasies that, that you might do something that's, that's in your mind incredibly safe, you know, Mm -hmm. to like touch that button a little bit. 
you know, but I don't know if that's the case with him or not. I mean, I mean, I really don't. And when you say it's obviously bullshit, I mean, I'm not going to say it's obviously not either, but, but everything, obviously the kidnapping was not obviously going to happen. Okay. So that's the told story. Your book that you co-wrote with uh, Mr. Bally is called the untold story. Give us a little (laughs) bit of the untold story. What hasn't been told? What don't we know? Well, I mean, a lot of the things that you even, I mean, not, not the, a lot of the things, but even talking about um, things like I mentioned, like the cell phone tower and so on and so forth. Um, there's a lot of things that, that people, when there's an article written about Gil, um, it's kind of amazing, like how it will still like catch on around the world. And if you were to like, look at some of the comment sections, there'd be so many people that will say like, oh, well, he actually was on the block of this person. Oh, he actually was going to do this, and he actually was going to do that. And they really had no evidence of him doing anything at all. And I think Mm -hmm. that's probably the biggest part of the untold story. A lot of it also is about paraphilias and fetishes that, to me, is one of the most interesting aspects of the whole story. People are just afraid to talk about people that have different fantasies and paraphilias. I mean, there's still a lot of things out there that a lot of people are turned on by. And, and if somebody is turned on by one of those things, it's just shunned in society. And you're not supposed to talk about it. Yeah, but there's a line. It, it, I mean, th- there's the paraphilia of wanting to spank someone who wants to be spanked and everybody lives and right. everybody's happy. When you start talking about paraphilias that are morally outrageous and cannot be realized without someone being destroyed or damaged in a very serious way, that understandably makes people more uncomfortable. Now I'm going to like, I want to leap to the other side and say to people, say to listeners, there are people out there who are cannibal fetishists who, who want to be the gills of the world, who want to be the cannibal cop or lawyer or librarian or whatever. There are also people who fantasize about being on the other end of that. There are people who fantasize about being cannibalized. Right. Most famously, the case of the German cannibal in uh, the 1990s where the guy went online and found a guy who wanted to be killed and eaten and killed him and ate him. And made headlines all over those even a film made about that case so it's not just that there are gills out there there are also people who fantasize about being victims but these are fantasized but these are fantasies that cannot be realized it's like a little like pedophilia a pedophile is not a child molester exactly but you know a pedophile who acts on those urges is going to molest and harm a child in the process so those urges can never be acted upon and and to act upon them is to is to break the law, is to violate someone and, and perhaps destroy someone. So you, you may not, but we shouldn't say to people that it's not, you, you know, we, we don't want to blur the line between having the fantasy and performing the act. And that is exactly what makes this so fascinating. What you said is exactly what makes it so fascinating. And that's what I was trying to get to as well, is that you're correct. There's a line. I mean, in a relationship with somebody, if some dude comes up to you, he's been dating you for like six months and he's like, Hey, you know, like, I hate to tell you this, or maybe he doesn't even hate to tell you this, but like, I really get turned on by the thought of like killing you and eating you. You're oh going to get freaked out. Yeah. You know, but should he go, but should he go to prison for that? Mm-hmm. That's what I'm talking about. And the exact issue with the pedophile is the exact same situation. You know, if somebody's attracted to kids, but never acts on it his whole life, mm-hmm. you want to put that, I'm not saying you, but mm-hmm. the society want to put that person in prison because he's attracted to children and not because of what he actually does. Right. And so that is like, to me, that's what makes this case so wild. And that's what makes working with Gil on it. So interesting to me, because it is that case where it's like, you know, there's people in my personal life that are like, Oh, I don't want to meet him. 
you know, they're like, you know, I don't want to talk to Gil. Like you're working with Gil, mm-hmm. you know, and I see him all the time, like all the time. And, um, you know, I find, I find the whole thing fascinating. I mean, there's, there's a real, there's a real line there between, oh my God, you're so sick. And, oh my God, you're so sick. So let's lock you up because you think things. Right. And we're trying these days to make clearer distinctions between going back to the pedophilia example, non-offending pedophiles and child molesters in the hopes that being able to make that distinction is going to help more people with pedophilic desires resist acting upon them. That if we can acknowledge the difference between non-offending pedophiles and child molesters, we will have fewer pedophiles actually molest children and more non-offending pedophiles because there are going to be people with these desires. They do not choose these desires. James Cantor and other researchers have, I think, pretty conclusively demonstrated that pedophilia is a sexual orientation. And how do we help the people who are burdened with this orientation? And it's in our best interest to help them because it protects children to help these people not offend. And so is this a conversation you and I are now having between non-offending cannibal fetishists and offending cannibal (laughs) fetishists? Well, I mean, in a sense, in a sense we are, you know, I mean, in a sense, in a sense we are, um, because that, yeah, I think that is a conversation that we're having. I mean, there's all sorts of, um, you know, I mean, Bill Cosby's obviously a somnophiliac, you know, I mean, in, in apparently Bill Cosby's a rapist. Instead of just, yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, okay. So I said, apparently, but let's just take the apparently out. He's a rapist. Mm-hmm. Right. So if there's somebody that's a somnophiliac and never rapes anybody, like, should they both go to prison? Okay, let's uh, retroactively toss allegedly's out there for legal reasons. <laughs> but I think if, you know, 50 <laughs> well, women I was are on say apparently, the, the cover of New York Magazine all telling a similar story, and you've essentially admitted as much uh, right. in court as Cosby has done, I think we can drop the allegedly. But for legal reasons, we should probably run back there and insert right. the allegedly. Uh, full disclosure here, and maybe I'll be the first person you encounter who can say this to you, as you get out there and promote your new book, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, the Milwaukee cannibal, ate a friend of mm-hmm. mine, killed really? and ate a friend of mine, really. And so that kind of colors my take or my read on Yeah, this no, I understand. I understand that, yeah. There are offending cannibals out there in the world. And, right, and right. people who are sex criminals and cannibals out there in the world, including Dahmer, who killed and ate my friend Tony. And that's and that's horrible. And it, and it, it is it, horrible. And, it, and, and and so I want to know. I want you to assure me. But this might be interesting to you. So when you say that, so Park Dietz um, is a famous criminal forensic psychologist. He he um, has studied Dahmer and Gil. He says Dahmer is incredibly dangerous. He says Gil's not dangerous at all. And why? How 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 does he make that distinction between? Well, I'm not exactly sure about that. I mean, I've never read the whole report. Wait, you wrote, wait, 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 wait. You wrote a book with this guy about his case and you haven't read this whole report that suggests that he is not at risk of offending? Why not? No, I haven't. Why well, not? in part because well, in part because when I'm writing a book with somebody, what I'm doing is writing a book with that person from that point of view. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the way that I'm looking at at writing a book with somebody as opposed to about somebody. Okay. If you get what I'm trying to say. I also didn't talk to his, I mean, I didn't try to talk to his ex-wife. I didn't try to talk to the prosecutors. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm writing a book with him. Okay. The book is Raw Deal, The Untold Story of NYPD's Cannibal Cop by Brian Whitney, co-authored with 
Gil Valley, the cannibal cop. Thanks Thank for you so- having me on. Hey, thanks so much for coming on. It was a really interesting, lively conversation. And uh, Yeah, for sure. Best of luck with the book. Take it easy, man. Thank you. Hi, Dan. I'm a 52-year-old straight female, although recently learning to explore the female body, living in Southern California. I recently got out of an unhappy 25-year marriage. For the last three years of our marriage, I had been having an affair with a man. My ex-husband knew about it. I ended our marriage when I told our kids what I had been doing so that my ex couldn't use it against me anymore. My youngest, my daughter, was horribly upset, and we have had many ups and downs since then. In hindsight, I realized that I traumatized her needlessly and have apologized to her many times. My problem is this. I still have a relationship with the man that I had an affair with, and we have only gotten closer. We recently began a polyamorous relationship with his wife, which is working out better than I ever imagined possible. My daughter is graduating from college this June and intends to move back home with me. She knows I still see him, but refuses to even let me talk to him when she's in the house. I don't expect her to approve or even agree to meet him, but I need to set some boundaries with her without completely alienating her from my life. After many years of living an unhappy and unfulfilled life, I want the freedom to explore this new phase of my life. I don't know if I should continue to be honest and say that this is now involved into a polyamorous relationship or keep that to myself. Dan, please help me figure out how to have the adult life that I want and need to explore without hurting my daughter. So let me see if I got this straight. Your adult daughter is graduating from college and is moving home to live with you. I assume either rent-free or subsidized to probably a great extent. And she thinks she has a right to dictate to you her adult parent who is housing her, who you may or may not speak to, who you may or may not hang out with, suck the dick of, mess around with the wife of. Uh, No, bullshit. Yeah, you need to establish some boundaries. You need to establish those boundaries fast. I don't doubt that you've done a lot of apologizing to your daughter. Now it's time to do some standing up to your daughter. One last conversation, one last acknowledgement of the pain that you caused her. Yes, you had an affair. Adult relationships, particularly 25-year marriages, are long and messy and complicated things, and sometimes they end, and sometimes they don't end neatly and cleanly. Sometimes there are overlapping relationships or dynamics. And in this instance, although your daughter is involved because she is your kid and was swept up in it, and of course as a child of divorce myself, I understand how it must have impacted her. It has reached the none of her fucking business stage. It has reached the stage where you are allowed to go on with your life and you don't have to be in this defensive, cringing, apologetic crouch for the rest of your life as you interact with your daughter. So you tell her that she is welcome to move home. She needs to know you are still in relationship with the man that you were seeing when you were cheating on her father. And that was suboptimal. You should have ended the marriage and then gone and found someone else. But this is the way a lot of people get out of their marriages, their relationships. They meet somebody else. Shit happens. It incentivizes bringing about an end that needed to come anyway. And that's how it ends. And it's a little messy, but it is not uncommon. And just tell her everything that he's married to someone else. And the three of you are kind of doing a poly thing, which is not unfucking heard of these days. Basically, you need to come out to your adult daughter and not just come out to her, stand up to her. You are done apologizing for this adult mess that 
impacted her emotionally, yes, but it's not her affair ultimately. And you are an adult and you are free to enter into relationships of whatever structure or model that you choose. And you will not judge her for the relationships she chooses to initiate or enter into or however they might end. And you will not be judged by her. And you will certainly not subsidize her. You will certainly not pay her rent and cover her food and utilities so that she can glower at you and dictate to you who you may or may not hang out with. So, yeah, you left a callback number, but you know who I'd really like to get on the phone? I'd really like to get your daughter on the phone. If she's not a listener, maybe you should turn her on to the show. And if she hears this call, if she hears your call, maybe you should send her the link to this particular show. And she would like to have a conversation with me, child of divorce to child of divorce, about this situation. I would be happy to talk with her. Hey, Dan, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth, long-time listener, first-time caller. I'm a late 20s female living in a major East Coast city. My best friend over the summer was raped by one of her college friends who uh, lives in our city and uh, is in our, I guess, circle of friends. She was upset about it for a while, but I guess they talked about it and made up or something. I don't really know what was said. I don't know what kind of conversation can be had to make something like that okay. Um, but my my friend insists that it's under control. And, you know, I want to respect her wishes, but that doesn't change the fact that every time I see this college friend, I want to punch her in the face. You know, I don't want to be selfish. I don't want to, you know, create problems for my friend. I'm not, I don't have plans to, like, take any retaliatory action. I'm just wondering, what do I do? I, I mean, I try to not be around this person as often as humanly possible, but every time I have to fake a smile, every time I have to say hello to her, if I see her out, like, I... I'm screaming inside. She just posted uh, on her on social media like a, a quote, you know, that the the grab and by the pussy quote by Donald Trump with like a broken hearted emoji after and the hypocrisy of it. Oh my god. Okay, so I listened to your call and I have two theories and I want to lay them out for you before you give me any more information. I'm calling you for details because I feel like I need details to determine which of my reaction theories might be correct. The first theory is that your friend who's now palling around with a rapist had some sort of Stockholm syndrome, battered spouse syndrome, where she is now defending and excusing this person's behaviors, defending her rapist, this woman who she said raped her to to you, right? So that's yeah. that, that theory one, that kind of Stockholm syndrome, identifying with your captor, technically with Stockholm syndrome, but battered spouse, you see that, that happens. Um, the other thing that I wondered if was a possibility was that what went down was murky. Consent was murky. Your friend in the wake of this gray zone shit felt violated, felt as if she'd been raped, described it as rape to you and other friends when she was seeking support. And then when 
there was some moment of communication and clarification where there was acknowledgement on both parties' part that this was shitty and awkward and bad sex and not good sex and blurry consent sex, but there was not in your friend's second take, her reassessment after talking with the person she felt violated her, that she downgraded it perhaps from sexual assault or rape to bad sex with murky consent. And she views it differently now than she did before. So which do you think it is? And is it either of those things? Um, I think it's a blend of both possibly. Um, I didn't have time, I think, to mention this in my initial call, but um, they had like fooled around consensually prior to this, but Mm -hmm. like they'd spoken about it and said, you know, like we're friends. Our priority is the friendship. It's just that on the night in question, like this girl got into bed with her and my friend said, like, no, "No, I don't want to do this. She said Mm. no a couple of times. And like the other, the girl, the other girl just wasn't having it. And like, that's not the first instance of this girl, like being very sexually aggressive with my friend when my friend like wasn't having it, you know, it was just, she couldn't get away, I guess, in this instance. And the person who posted the Donald Trump pussy grabber quote to Instagram is your friend who was raped or the other woman who raped her? The other, the other woman. Um, and I called you after I saw that because it just, it really was upsetting and like Mm -hmm. strange. Uh, is that irony? Whatever it is. Um, I think it's critical, whatever. I I think it's gall. Okay. Yes. Um, the gall of it. You know, if you went to the police with this, even if your friend went to the police with this, it's unlikely to be a prosecution. I don't know. I mean, but, but that could be said for... <laughs> right, right. But but that's why I am firmly on the side of social accountability in cases like this, where the criminal justice system may fall short or be incapable of adjudicating, rushing into instances like this and adjudicating it, social consequences and social the enforcement of social norms can help prevent shit like this from being perpetrated in the future by that very person, perhaps. If she pays a social price, not you punch her in the face, you assaulting her <laughs> is not the answer. Uh, I but wouldn't. Her, her, being I held, her being held accountable, I don't want to use the much abused phrase called out, but her being held accountable by your mm-hmm. friend, by you, by a couple other people, just to pull her aside and say, Look, this was fucked up. This is not okay. This has happened before. And this has to this has to stop or there will be a social price that you will pay. You will lose friends. We will not be a, we will not have you as a part of our communities if you can't knock this shit off. If you can't get a grip, if you can't get help, if you can't see the error of your ways and the hypocrisy in going after Donald Trump when you are violating other people's nose, when you are violating other people and, and, and initiating sex with them without their consent, 
you will be cast out. And part of social accountability is we will talk about this. You will be known for this. You may not end up in prison, but you could end up being socially damaged. And you should be because people should know to be wary of you. Right. And I guess part of my concern was that, you know, I was, I have been willing to play up the social accountability part, but my friend to whom this happened, like, was either was unwilling or unable to get into that mindset but um what does your friend say what does your friend say now about what went down she knows that she needs to talk to this person but in the meantime she's just been avoiding her but Um, she's not like hanging out with her all the time like she used to be because i don't know maybe us talking about it and like having someone else in her corner to like say this wasn't okay brought her around well, create that accountability moment. March in there with your friend and have it out with this other person. Like, like I said earlier, I, this isn't an instance where involving the police is going to fix anything or no. create accountability. Yeah. But there are times in the lives of our friends where we have to step up and not just hold our friends to account, sometimes police the behavior of our friends. You think so? Yeah. I'm not talking about your friend who's sexually assaulted. Let's remember she's the victim here, right? I'm talking about this other person who's in your social yeah, circles, no, even if she's not a friend. And I don't mean police by some sort of vigilante justice. You're not going to beat the right, shit out of her right. or lock her in your basement for five years. You're just going to go to her and say, this all went down. We all know it. It's fucked up. It has happened before. This has to stop. You have a problem. You're preying on people and you're violating people's consent and we know it, and you need to know we know it, and you're on notice. You're yeah. on probation. You're you're going to be known for this. And my friend has a right to her experience, and I have the right to come to the defense of my friends, and I will, dis- I will warn people to stay the fuck away from you. And I guess how that's going to cause a lot of social fallout which is like the i guess least of my concerns fear of social fallout is often the sexual abuser predator's best friend people don't want to upset everyone so they don't say or do anything and that person relies on that to continue abusing the spouse they're abusing to continue violating people the way they've been violating people and then how are how do you suggest managing the social fallout? I guess people you let the chips fall with your do, do you want to be do you want to be friends with people who would take the side of no, someone who no. is a sexual uh, predator in a sense? No, I mean sometimes friend circles and social circles divide, and sometimes they split. And I think that you know if the division or the split is over you know, real housewives of Atlanta or some bullshit, then that's stupid. That's silly. You know, you blurted out a game of Thrones spoiler and our social circle fell apart. Well, that's ridiculous, but a social circle to split over holding someone accountable for their behavior, for the way they've treated someone for sexual assault, potentially that's that rises to the level of a, a social split that may need to happen. 
And that may be for the best if what that split is going to do is get people out of your social circle who don't take consent seriously. Okay. Good luck. Thank you, and thanks for calling. You're welcome. Hi, Dan. This is a 30-year-old uh, cis male from the Midwest calling with a little issue. Uh, my current girlfriend really wants to know the name of one of my previous ex-girlfriends because she volunteers at the same organization as she does. I've told her that I believe that everybody is entitled to the past and the let go, but she really wants to know, quote, who she's dealing with. Uh, can you give us some help or some input? Thank you very much. Okay, I don't know why you wouldn't tell her the name of your ex. And she's going to find out who your ex is sooner or later, probably sooner anyway, because if they volunteer at the same organization, the old gossip mill is going to do and do soon what you're refusing to do, which is identify your ex. So I would just toss that name out there on the table. I would, however, say to your girlfriend that the way she's framing this wants to know who she's competing with is crazy. She is your ex. This is not a competition. That relationship is over and done. If your girlfriend, hi girlfriend, I assume you're listening. Girlfriend, if you are the kind of person who feels that you're going to protect the relationship in now by going after or being shitty to or sneering at your partner's exes, knock that shit the fuck off. That is not how it works. It doesn't make you more appealing as a partner or a human being or a colleague or a coworker or a co-volunteer. It makes you repulsive as all of those things. You should be kind and gracious and a little awkward with your boyfriend's ex-girlfriend when you guys interact, but you should be friendly and kind. Their relationship is over. It is history. You are current. Relax. Nothing makes someone less appealing. Nothing makes an ex more appealing in hindsight than a current being shitty and insecure and crazy about the exes. Hi, I am a 35-year-old living on the East Coast. I'm bisexual. I'm currently in a relationship with a man that it's frustrating, but I do love him. We have great sex. We're really good friends most of the time. Um, we just have some trouble with trust uh, and the fact that I think he's maybe a little bit more controlling than is normal. I have a feeling what you're going to tell me, but uh, I also kind of need to know if I'm not the crazy one because it seems like it tends to go there a lot. Uh, basically, he cannot ever hear about me being sexual in the past with a man. Uh, the idea that I would ever like look at another guy and find him attractive is something that uh, he doesn't want to hear about. And by hear about it, like I can't even, if we're watching a TV show, say, oh, wow, that guy's kind of cute. That's enough to throw him into a tailspin. I think that's a little extreme. I think. We're both adults and sexual beings. He sees women and points out how attractive they are. So, and I let him know that's a double standard. And he seems sorry about it, but he also doesn't stop doing it. And yet if I was to do the same thing, he would absolutely lose his mind. We were split up a while ago. We kind of had on and off again. And in our, one of our recent conversations about the fact that it seems unreasonable of him to think I'm like not sexual in any way that I've sort of become this completely asexual person except for him and then maybe other girls that he would like to invite into the bedroom and that I find that to be unreasonable. He brought up an incident 
in our past where we had been split up for about six weeks. I went on a date and slept with the guy twice. And this now has been a year and a half. And I sort of am wondering, like, it's been a year and a half. Is he still bringing this up? Like, do I, do I put a limit on it? Because it kind of had to do with what we were talking about. But at the same time, it was just kind of out of nowhere. It was like, I don't want you to, I don't want to hear about you liking other guys. Oh, by the way, you fucked this other guy once. And it sort of felt like he's throwing it in my face. He also, after that incident, when we got back together, he insisted that it was the normal thing to do, that I get rid of my bed, which meant like my mattress, my headboard, my box springs, all of my quilts, my pillows, because I had slept with the other person in it. And he just thought that was the normal thing to do. I felt like if you're not married, that's probably extreme. And yet I thought it was the price of admission that I had to pay. So I did do it. I just don't know whether that was a good choice. What do you think, Dan? Like, is there any hope? Should I just cut my losses? Is this guy too controlling? Is he expecting too much? Or am I oversharing? Am I by saying like, hey, you know, that guy's kind of cute. Is that too much? And no partner should be expected to put up with that. So the sex is good. That's nice. And you're really good friends. And that's always a bonus. Uh, but then you, you say that we have some troubles with trust and I object to that use of the plural pronoun there, unless you're the queen of fucking England, which I don't think you are. He has trouble with trust. He has a jealousy problem. He is controlling. He is desperately insecure. He is waving a red flag over his head that doesn't say I'm an abuser, but this is a flag that abusers frequently and typically wave. It's a sign that he could be abusive. He's certainly emotionally abusive. If he's managed to convince you that you're the crazy one, I hate to use the word that is being overused and abused so much at this moment, but he's gaslighting you. Throw away your mattress and your box springs and your sheets and your pillows and your pillowcases and your comforter because you fucked somebody else on that? Is he fucking crazy? Sleeping with somebody else isn't bed bugs. Everybody sleeps. Could you imagine how many mattresses would be on the streets every Monday morning if the standard was if you fucked somebody else in that bed and now you're in a relationship with someone, you have to get rid of all that crap? Oh my God. You could stand on the top of the average landfill in this country and touch the moon if that was the case. He's a crazy person. Maybe he's crazy like a fox. Maybe he is doing this all intentionally to break down your will and to control you and isolate you. Or maybe he's just fucking nuts. Either way, he's fucking nuts and you need to get the hell out of this relationship. You need to not move in with this guy or move the back fuck out if you've already moved in with this guy and you need to run from him. And as you run with each step, you need to remind yourself that no one would get into a relationship with a crazy, abusive motherfucker if they were just unappealing on all scores, if they were unappealing or repulsive on every metric. But that's not the way it works. Crazy, controlling, assholes with jealousy issues who may or may not be abusers are often really charismatic, really good guys or good women. Most of the time, often really great fucking sex. Otherwise no one would hang out long enough to be driven crazy or abused by anyone. If abusers were just completely monstrous shitbags, abusers often have redeeming qualities. 
that's what suckers people into hanging out long enough to get abused by an abuser. Run. He doesn't need a girlfriend. He needs a therapist. And he's likelier to realize he needs to go get one when you dump him and you tell him why you're dumping him. This message is for the woman in episode 542 who called about the guy who burned her with a cigarette um, and proceeded to tell her how much he hates women. And she felt guilty um, about possibly walking away. I think that you guys are right to tell her to leave him alone. But I also want to say that um, that as women, we may go into a situation thinking that, you know, oh, my gosh, this poor guy needs help. But actually, he sounds malicious. He sounds manipulative. And it sounds like that's exactly what he wanted from you was to feel guilty, to feel guilty enough to stay. I don't think that he needs your help or that he wants your help. I think that his desire was to make you feel fucked up and recognize that and stay away. You have no obligation to him or to anybody else or any other woman that feels guilted into staying with a man, befriending a man, trying to love him enough to change him or to try and be that example to all womanhood, not your responsibility. He can get his own shit together. Hey, Dan Nancy, the Tech Savvy at Rescue. This is in response to the, your advice to the caller in episode uh, 542, the guy who uh, didn't put a condom on when she asked if he would like to please put a condom on. Um, I think your advice was right. And, and also, you know, your, your point about women being socialized to ask questions rather than to say what they want is also good. On the flip side of that, men, if a woman asks you a question about something that sort of sounds like maybe it's a leading question that she's trying to tell you what she, what she wants, but she's phrasing it in the form of a question, listen the fuck up to that understand that she may not feel comfortable telling you what she wants. She may feel like she has to phrase what she wants in the form of a question. And you need to also respect that. And we want to move towards the world where everyone feels comfortable saying what they want. But in the meanwhile, guys on the side, on the powerful side of this power, this power gap need to listen to what women on the other side are saying. I just listened to episode 542 where a caller moved from King County to a more conservative area and is in need of support. I also recently moved from a progressive area to a conservative town and completely understand what he is going through. My advice for you would be to stop freely talking about your political and social stances at work. Do not engage. The people who are upsetting you are feeding off your reactions and will not easily be swayed with kind and considerate conversation. Remove negative people and all coworkers from your social media accounts and keep a strict separation between your work life and your personal life. Be kind and professional, but firm on this boundary as it will be tested on a regular basis. Also, find your tribe. Like Dan said, there are progressives in your area. They are most likely keeping to themselves, but do what you can to find them. While you are finding them, you will also find organizations that are in need of your compassion and help. This will be your progressive outlet and your haven. Until then, call your old friends on a regular basis for some normality. My last bit of advice for living in a conservative town is to go onto the casual encounters area on Craigslist and pursue the listings, not for finding someone, but to see the vast number of listings out there. Chances are many are written by the blowhard conservatives in your area looking for strains on the down low. The absurdities of some of these posts and my laughter was a great equalizer for me during a time when I felt lost and trapped in this area. Good luck and stay strong. 
Before we leave it there, we want to remind everyone we're having a live taping of the Savage Lovecast, a live stage extravaganza in Portland at the Revolution Hall on April 14th. Go to portlandmercury.com slash Easter for tickets. I'm going to be there. Singer-songwriter Rachel Lark is going to be there. Stand-up comedian Noriko Ott is going to be there. Jesus is going to be there and more. April 14th, Good Friday, Portland, Oregon, portlandmercury.com slash Easter for tickets. All right, that's where we're going to leave it. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast, and we will see you in Portland on April 14th.